Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Byrne. How you doing? I'm doing great. Another great show today. We do have a great show. We are going to be talking to Ryan Rollo, who is the Chief Operating Officer of Channel Key, which is an organization that helps people maximize profits on Amazon and elsewhere. We're really excited to get into this timely topic. But first, this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. And we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy and marketing and media agency, Chizcom. And Ryan, thanks for sitting down with us. Good to be with you, Chris. Thanks for having me. And Richard, nice to be with you. Thanks for remembering me. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> why don't we just jump in and give people an overview of what Channel Key is? Yeah, so so Channel Key is uh, a group of, of Amazon experts. Uh, we're, we're an agency that helps brands operate on Amazon and Walmart. And uh, we're very specific to Amazon. So, you know, in, in, internally, we talk about Channel Key being uh, a surgeon, not a general practitioner for digital marketing. And we're a surgeon for Amazon specifically. Um, so if, if a brand would like to increase their presence on Amazon, grow their uh, sales or advertising opportunities within the Amazon platform, uh, we are a group that can help that brand do it. Well, it certainly is a much needed service. I, I think um, Amazon is complicated. Uh, at least to, to lay people. And it has become uh, such a major uh, retailer for toys now. And if you're going to do business there, you need to understand as well as you do Walmart or Target. So when you talk to people, is there is there one thing, one important thing they miss about doing business with Amazon? No. It's not one thing. It's not one thing, Richard. It's so many things, right? Oh, it's wonderful. Amazon is constantly introducing new opportunities for brands to compete, right? So if, if you look at Amazon search rankings and their search results page 10 years ago or, or five years ago, before Amazon, before the Amazon ad platform really took off, you have uh, almost... Uh, almost entirely uh, organic rankings, organic search results of products for sale, right? So whatever is the most relevant product, when you type in that search bar, uh, building blocks, you will get the most relevant building blocks to come up and it won't be a paid ad, right? If you look at Amazon's uh, detail or search results page today, you have paid opportunities at the top of the page. You have paid uh, sponsored placements within the product listing carousel. You have paid placements within the actual results of, of products below that. You have a paid display ad to the right of that uh, section of products. And you have paid opportunities in between in the form of video display and also product ads. You can also advertise your brand store now. So there's so many different opportunities for brands to compete within the search results page that it's becoming more and more complicated as time goes on. Does that mean that as with say traditional TV advertising, the, the person with the biggest spend gets the biggest exposure? I think that's an interesting question because when I think about traditional 
media, uh, typically those were sort of, it's an expensive play, right? There's a threshold, right? For brands to enter into those traditional media opportunities. On Amazon, there is not a threshold. And so the, the algorithm will surface a percentage of advertisers, no matter what their budget is. And so it's actually, it actually allows for um, those with less of an ad budget to compete. And there's other ways you can increase relevancy. So if your content is really good, if you have very good A-plus content, enhanced content, uh, if you have titles and descriptions that are highly relevant to the keyword that's being used in the search of Amazon, your product is more likely to show up even if your bid is lower uh, within the advertising auction. I think the the entry to the barriers to entry within Amazon are so much lower that it's actually more competitive uh, for smaller brands than than it is uh, traditional media. Does long tail theory still apply? And long tail theory is the, the notion that there's a few people who are in love with a particular product, they're just scattered all over the country. So you have, and, and the internet is effective at reaching those people. So is, is, it, is it still in play? And if it is, is that another way that you can help people by really getting in touch with those people who love uh, kind of arcane products? I think long tail is certainly in play. The the pie is big enough, Richard. You know, if you if you look at the numbers, about ten percent. Amazon sells about ten percent of products on Amazon.com, and traditionally those are the winners. Amazon has picked the winners. They want to buy the winners, and they want to be the seller of record on the winning products. Those ten percent of products are traditionally 1P, right? These are 1P sold by Amazon products. They make up somewhere between 40 and 50% of volume on Amazon. So so 46% of volume on Amazon is made up by the top 10% of products. Well, there's another $220 billion in the other 90% of products, which is more than enough room for long tail to succeed. So I, I would agree with you, Richard. Longtail still applies for sure. For a lot of the toy companies that I talk to, Amazon is pretty baffling. What do they do? And and even me with my not direct engagement uh, on a daily basis have told people, develop A-plus a content, develop more things on the site. How do you begin the process of working with somebody who comes to you and goes, help? Yeah. It's a good question. I, there's uh, a lot of variance in where where brands are when they come to us, right? So you may have um, a brand that exists outside of Amazon that has a large presence that may have uh, a couple hundred or a couple thousand employees, frankly, and their e-commerce department has four. Right, right. <laughs> right. right. So... We have to understand where is the brand, uh, how is the brand uh, perceived outside of Amazon and where is the brand at on Amazon today? And w- what we do um, in the initial discovery is we do an analysis, uh, we call it an opportunity analysis. Really, it's a um, sort of a barrier to entry for us. We're, we're sort of def- figuring out whether we want to take a client 
because we're very selective in the clients that we take. And we're, we want to understand, okay, what, what, what is the market? What are the lowest level node categories that this brand is participating in? What do they have in terms of market share today and share of voice and keyword density today in those sub-subcategories? And how big are those market opportunities within Amazon? And we have, we have various technology tools that allow us to sort of analyze how big a particular market is within the Amazon domain. One is how, how much room is there for growth? And then, and then comes the strategy for growth, right? And, it, and it, there's, a, there's sort of a checklist that we have to do to ensure that each opportunity within Amazon is at its fullest potential. So is the brand store right? How, how good is the brand's brand store? Do we need to re-optimize that for, for conversion? Uh, how good is the, the content? We call it a, a marketplace product and, uh, product and content analysis, it's called an MPA. Uh, we do this for every brand during the onboarding uh, phase. We analyze every single product and we say, okay, where do we need to improve uh, content? Do we have more than five images for every product? Do we have infographics available? Are, or do we have at least five bullet points next to the, the image on the product page? Are we using sponsored video? Are we using sponsored brand store? Are we using sponsored display? Uh, what is going to be the strategy for growth? What's the budget? And what are the profit margins? So when we when we look at all of these things holistically, that's how that's how we solve the the challenge, the growth challenge that the brand is facing. And uh, the other the other question is, if you have a brand that's already competing, how do you want to protect your brand? Right. If if you look at a brand like Lego, who's probably going to do close to a billion dollars on Amazon this year, I think they'll exceed a billion dollars, according to similar web. They're protecting their ads inventory space. If you search Lego, you will not see any other competitors on their search result because they own, they've, they've paid for every placement within the search page. And I did this exercise before coming on, on the podcast. I, I searched Lego set. And you have one sponsored display owned by Lego. You have one sponsored video owned by Lego. And it's a beautiful video, it's brand generated content. Usually you'd, you'd have some sponsored products leafed into the search result, but in this case, Lego has got a great video. So that's what Amazon has chosen to display. You've got two vertical banner display units, both owned by Lego. You have four sponsored product ads, and this is the only section where other competitors have have uh, listings company called Dovob you have a dragon toy you have an Aman. Ah I you know I don't even know what these these are but they're somehow related to Lego set <laughs> you have two sponsored brand store units at the bottom one's owned by Lego one one in this case was owned by Berg kids and then you have a horizontal banner owned by Lego and a scrolling carousel owned by Lego so you <laughs> You have something like 90% of the ad inventory owned by Lego. And that's a defensive ad advertising strategy. And it works very well for established brands. Brian, what occurs to me as we're talking, we did a uh, survey through Global 20 News a couple months ago. And one of the questions related to uh, Amazon. And 
in general, people felt it was challenging to be profitable. And they found the, the process to be frustrating. And they were concerned about being undercut on price and Amazon would suddenly stop, would, would withdraw the product until the price evened out, et cetera. So how do you be profitable on Amazon? In part of your question, um, you referenced Amazon deciding not to fulfill POs or, or send more POs or potentially Amazon undercutting pricing or not abiding by map. And it leads my train of thought to go straight to 1P versus 3P, right? So whether you're in vendor central or in seller central and the profitability of third-party selling on Amazon is quite a bit higher than 1P in my opinion. Um, and in some cases it's not, but in most cases it is. It is. If you look at just some of the cons of selling direct to Amazon, of selling wholesale to Amazon and letting Amazon sell your product, um, many of those are, are listed in your question, right? Control, do you have control over your price when you sell to Amazon and Amazon sells your product? No, Amazon controls your price. Are you able to um, force Amazon to abide by your minimum advertised price? No, Amazon is is not going to, li to listen, right? Are you in control of how your brand is perceived? Do you get to make your own brand store or produce your own brand content? Maybe, and maybe Amazon will take it from you. Maybe they won't. Um, your profit margins at wholesale are going to be lower. Your cash flow cycle is going to be longer. The inventory availability and the that's totally discretionary to Amazon, and that might run out. Um, even if there's demand, Amazon has been shown to lower POs for some reason, whether it's they saw your price, your product price lower elsewhere and they want to penalize you or, uh, you know, be punitive in some other way. There's some price erosion because Amazon's continually lowering prices and you have brand reputation to worry about. So when I think about that question, I think, OK, well, the best way to be profitable on Amazon is to control your own pricing sort of control your own destiny. And it's true that the margin, uh, the margins have been squeezed um, before this amazing ad platform was uh, developed over the last five years. It's $21 billion ad platform now. Uh, much of that is driven through sponsored product placements, uh, which is cutting into sellers' margins. So you're looking at you know, a 15% fee to sell the product you're looking at an additional 10% average A cost, we call it, or tacos, we'd call it. It's total advertising cost of sale. So you're really looking at 25% just to sell the product. Now take into account logistics and uh, FBA uh, fees and shipping and other things. You need 30 to 40 points on the bottom plus your margin to sell these products. And now if you look back, typically in, in traditional retail, that was the markup, right? You do a you do a two x markup. You got fifty fifty on the on the uh, margin for the retailer. So it's it's very similar, but you have to price right in order to build a sustainable business. You talked about Lego's program, and it seems pretty comprehensive and far reaching. For a smaller manufacturer, are these programs scalable? So as they become more successful on Amazon, they can ramp up what they're doing and potentially be more strategic. 
I think it depends on on what the brand is trying to achieve in terms of scale. What does scale mean to certain brands, right? So to Lego, scale means like billions of dollars. Uh, to most brands, uh, for the small manufacturers, scale means Amazon is is a big portion of of revenue and somewhere in the tens, maybe hundreds, probably tens of millions of dollars, right? Would be a scaled Amazon business. Um, and that's certainly achievable for almost, uh, you know, for almost every brand. Uh, if if you come to us, we, we've had many cases where $2 million business is turned into a $10 million business in two years. I think you just have to take these categories and these products on a case-by-case basis. How big is your catalog, right? Is it one product? Is it one SKU? Like that's, that's probably going to be difficult to scale right. to... $20 million. But if you have a, a interesting set of product lines, you've got 100 to 200 SKUs, and these are these are all uh, you know $100,000 ASINs, then you can scale to a, to a $20 million business on Amazon. And that's very achievable. Uh, let's, let's just go back to Amazon 101 for a minute. Could you kind of go through for a minute and just define some of these terms? So 1P, when I say 1P, I'm referring to first party. Uh, First party means that Amazon is sending a PO and buying the product, bringing it into their warehouse and handling the rest, right? So they're essentially listing the product for you. They are applying the prime badging. They are doing the logistics and they're acting as a traditional retailer. In a 3P, uh, I'm referring to third party. Uh, which is done through the seller central portion of Amazon. And uh, in that case, the brand is the seller of record, or the at least the seller of the product is the seller of record. And essentially, you are in control of the experience, the shipping, the listing of the product, the pricing, and all other efforts around the sale of that product. And they're both done on Amazon. Now, there's a third model that it, that I think you're referring to as as 2P uh, in some domains like Walmart 2P re- re- refers to a dropship relationship, but in Amazon there's another model called a hybrid, and in a hybrid model some of your SKUs are sold third party, and some of your SKUs are sold direct to Amazon. So Amazon typically likes to send POs for the high volume. Uh, fast movers, uh, but doesn't send POs for the rest of the catalog. And in that case, uh, a hybrid approach sometimes makes more sense. Um, There are also also cases where uh, shipping is uh, a burden and uh, Amazon has just such good rates and can price the product so low that wholesale makes more sense. You guys at Channel Key have identified clear Amazon toy category winners. You want to share that with us? So yeah, this this comes courtesy of similar web. They have a market intelligence product. So I, I've done some digging. I've gone through sort of who who owns this toys and games market, right? And it's it's very clear that Lego is leaps and bounds beyond the other players in the space. So Lego has something like two hundred and fifty million product views. Uh, on on Amazon uh, in the last year. Just to give you an idea of how far ahead Lego is from the rest of the pack, the number two in terms of product views is Funko with 
with somewhere between 125 million and 150 million product views. So Lego has double the number two in product views on, on, on Amazon, so 250 million. They actually have triple in terms of revenue, estimated revenue against Funko, which is the number two in the category. And then number three has something like 75 million product views and that's Pokemon, right? So again, doubled, you know, Funko has double the product views of Pokemon. Lego has double, uh, maybe even more uh, than Funko. There are some clear winners in the space. And the, all of the rest of the pack are below 50 million product views. Uh, you have Barbie, Nerf, uh, and, and some others. If you look at the top 25 brands selling on Amazon, Mattel ha has four of those brands in the form of Fisher-Price, Barbie, Hot Wheels, and Mattel Games. Uh, Mattel is estimated to be the number two in the category. If you look at Hasbro, Hasbro has four of the brands as well and is estimated to be number three, but very close to Mattel in terms of volume, both somewhere estimated in the, the 280 to $300 million range. And these are impressive Amazon businesses. Uh, let me just say, getting over $100 million on Amazon is achievable, but it takes a lot of effort. These brands have clearly been competing in the space. Uh, Hasbro... Uh, let's see, they, they own Nerf, right? They own Magic the Gathering. Magic the Gathering is actually ranked by SimilarWeb as the fifth, the fifth really? largest in volume, over $100 million sold on Amazon. I, I am not surprised. I constantly tell the, when I talk to the investment community, I tell them, do not uh, sideline or do not ignore the power of Magic the Gathering. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's impressive. Uh, it's, you know, more than Little Tykes, more than Crayola. It's really interesting. And then, and then when you go down past number five, you have something like eight out of the next 10 in the space are independent or private equity brands. They are not the the name, you know, the the big incumbents. You know, Melissa and Doug has an excellent Amazon business, but VTech and Joyin, uh, J O Y I N, has a yep. great Amazon business. Ravensburger has a fantastic Amazon yeah. business. It's not Hasbro. It's not Mattel, right? These are smaller smaller than the incumbents, but really doing quite well. One of the things that strikes me as you're talking about this is something I talk about all the time, which is that a brand is really a community. And when you look at Lego and you look at Barbie and you look at Magic the Gathering and you look at Funko, these have huge communities around them as well, where people interact around the product, not just in purchase, but that they are, in essence, though they're toys, they are lifestyle products. My mind goes straight to the available opportunities that Amazon is creating with their new divisions and new entities, right? So if you look at traditional amazon.com, it's retail. You have the ability to advertise products. You can do a sponsored brand placements. You can do sponsored display. Now Amazon's introduced to DSP. So you can programmatically buy display, video, or audio ads on and off of Amazon 
through through this demand side platform. It's called DSP demand side platform. It's programmatic. Anyone can participate as so long as you have excellent content. And Lego has the best content in the world. Yeah. So Amazon has created a way for these types of communities to be built through streaming, through online video ads. With Prime, you now have access to so many different ways of consuming media. Um, and then you have Alexa, you have audio ads that can be put right into the into the kitchen uh, you know, of your home. So Lego can basically be everywhere, everywhere you are. <laughs> it seems to me in listening to you today, it really comes across that e-commerce is, is not just a virtual form of physical retail commerce. It's really very, very different. What you've been telling us today about Amazon, are these generally truisms for most e-commerce in general, whether it's walmart.com or one of the mega-sized e-commerce providers in, in Asia? Are the fundamentals of doing business and e-commerce generally the same? I think the fundamentals are the same. However, Amazon and Walmart to a degree, and less so any other platform, Amazon and Walmart have raised the standard for brands participating online. So they require a much higher standard level of service or standard level of packaging, standard level of customer satisfaction than the uh, than others do. And so when when you're selling on Amazon or Walmart, yes, you have to have good product listings, right? You have to have good images. You have to have all angles. You need and, and preferably you'd have a video showing uh, the, the product in use, right? And today that is the package. It's a new form of packaging, I think. If you look at traditional retail, it's, you know, there's a lot of it is about packaging and how does this look and feel to the kid that's running down the aisle. In digital retail, the package is the product listing page. And you have to have an inspiring product listing page to get transactions done. What you don't have to worry about is all of the things that Amazon is facilitating, like checkout. Right on your own website, you do. You have to make checkout very easy. You need to get it as close to one click as possible. But on Amazon, they've already done that. Uh, you don't have to worry about bringing visitors to Amazon. They do that just fine. Your job in this day and age is to produce a product page that is like the best in class package for the product. And then you also have to have the best in class experience when the user receives it. So when the consumer receives your product and opens that package, it has to be beautiful. It has to be an experience in and of itself. And if it is, and if the product matches both the experience of receiving it and the experience of the product page, then you will receive a good review. If you don't get those things right, on a platform like Amazon or Walmart that allows users to leave reviews, you will quickly find your, your product deranked in search because your reviews won't be good. Okay, Ryan, we're going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests on the Playground podcast. Tell us a secret. I started in e-commerce in the late 2000s. And when 2012 and 2013 were rolling around and we thought, all thought Google was the only way to advertise social on Facebook were, were rapidly growing 
And I always used to say, ah, it's only 3% of the market. You know, we, we don't need to participate there. And now you look at the social today and it's a, you know, within five years of me saying that it was an $80 billion ad platform. The secret is that Amazon is exceeding that growth curve. If you look at uh, Amazon starting in 2016 to 2021, the growth curve is slightly faster than Facebook's trajectory of 2011 to 2016. If you put these two growth curves on top of each other, they look almost identical with Amazon being slightly higher, which means if it continues, Amazon will be the $80 billion ad platform in five years from today. That is amazing. And one of the things I've heard is that more shopping searches begin today on Amazon than they do on Google. It's something like 65%. Ryan Rolo, Chief Operating Officer of Channel Key. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. I hope people have really listened to this because I think this is a real clue, not just to managing your Amazon business today, but to using it as a platform for growth. So thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. Thanks for having me, Richard, Chris. It was a pleasure to be here. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about issues that are related to what's going on in the toy industry right now. And there's some big news coming out of California. They have mandated that toy departments need to be gender neutral. What the heck is up with that? I think it's really important for the toy industry because this mandate from the California legislature is that all toy departments and what they describe as department stores, and I think that includes Walmart, Target, anybody outside, that the toy department must be gender neutral. Folks in the toy industry really have to pay a lot of attention to this because the California economy, I understand, would be the fifth largest in the world if it was a separate country. So if, if planning ramps have to be redesigned for California, I don't believe that these large retailers are going to have two different planning one for California and one for the rest of the country. And because of planogram, it's going to impact what kind of toys are, are purchased. So it gets me to this question, Chris. What does a gender-neutral toy department look like? The challenge, though, Richard, I see with this is how are we going to define what a gender-neutral toy department is? Right now, things are organized by dolls and vehicles and games and construction and those are not inherently gender specific. We are up against a culture that is interpreting things as gender specific, but the box of toys is not necessarily gender specific. So I know that there's been pushback for companies like Fisher Price. People say, well, why do you make this in pink and why do you make this in blue? And their answer is because they both sell. There is a consumer out there who wants the pink toy for their little girl or their little boy, but that's what they want to buy. So I don't know how this is is mandated. I don't know how this is measured. I don't know what the metrics are for what is gender neutral because we're up against cultural constructs and cultural biases that have nothing to do with the basics of, of products. You know, I think back to the original Erector Set instruction book from 1913, and it starts out with a big 
hey boys, exclamation point, because it was inconceivable that girls would actually want to build something with girders and panels. So the culture has changed, but I don't know how anybody makes this work. We're going to have to make it work. And the question is going to be who's going to make the judgment. For starters, and we've already done this as an industry, the, the end of gender-specific signage, girls' department, boys' department, right, has generally gone away. Color coding, although cultural, is a signal. If it's pink, there is a signal. It's for girls, it's blue, it's for boys. So I'm not sure what you do there. Uh, we may be looking at a broader palette of color choices but that again is not up to the retailer that's up to the toy company making the product as is the decision as to who or anybody to put on the box i put a girl on the box that's a, only that's a signal I put a boy only that's a signal uh so those are some issues as for the store itself i think that's where it gets more complex because your point is There is a doll department. Dolls have historically been associated uh, with uh, girls. Uh, But if you step back and you say to yourself, "Hmm, okay, anything that is doll-like goes in this department. So I'm going to put my action figures and my dolls in the same department. As an example, that probably would change the dynamic of that department. I don't pretend to right now have answers to what will be a truly gender neutral. But I think we're going to see less product-specific signing. I think there could be a net good from this. I think if more girls go down the construction aisle, I think that's more consumption. This could end up increasing sales. And just one more point, Chris. I hear people say, well, how will people know how to find something for a girl? And I'm saying... If you don't know, <laughs> I, we, we can't help you. <laughs> right. You, know, <laughs> you should be able to figure that out for yourself. Right. Well, you should know the child you're buying things for. It's not just it's not just wish fulfillment. But there there are two things that, that come to mind. First of all, with any law, and I am not a lawyer, uh, but I, I do know that any law has to be specific. So there are going to have to be criteria developed that are going to indicate what is gender neutral. That's the only way that the law can be applied fairly and across all classes of trade. Second, what happens to somebody like Mattel with Barbie? Because Barbie Pink has been their brand... (laughs) Yeah. has been their brand for years. So what does that mean for companies like Mattel that have invested in a very specific brand-driven trade dress? Are they going to have to change it? And we don't know. No matter what happens, though, I, I think this is going to have an impact. I think we've been trending in this direction anyway. I've been a country that seems to be trending towards more gender fluidity that... Don't classify people. 
Right. And let me choose for my child. And the, the other thing that I think is really important to remember is just as I cited the Erector set from 1913, the toy industry always reflects the culture at large. And this move is really reflecting a larger cultural shift away from rigid gender identification for kids and more allowing kids to be able to express themselves through their play. So a boy who wants a Barbie, a girl who wants a Tonka truck, that might fly in the face of what was conventional 50 years ago, but it's perfectly acceptable now. And people want their stores to reflect that. They want the toy industry to reflect that. And I think a lot of movement has been made. You look at packaging, you look at the racial diversity, the gender diversity, the on all classes of, of toys right now. So I think we're moving in that direction. It's just when it becomes a law, it's becomes challenging. And we will see how the toy industry meets this challenge. Just as they've met every other challenge over the past hundred or more years, they've responded and thrived. So I, I don't think this is going to stop anybody. And I think kids are still going to find toys they love. And we hope you love these conversations. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the Toy Guy, and marketing and media agency, Chizcom. If you like these episodes, we hope you'll share them with your friends and colleagues on social media. And we look forward to having you tune in next time.